internet brand strategist Sandra Beck interviews top business coaches, speakers, authors, and thought leaders to bring you the best business tips, tricks, and techniques to give your idea the best possible chance for success. From writing your first novel, to telecommuting from home, to taking your small business to infinity and beyond. Now here's your host, Sandra Beck. Hey everybody, this is Sandra Beck and we're here on Coach Talk Radio with two of my favorite collaborative authors. They are also really neat guys. They have a bunch of best-selling books and they have careers outside of their writing. And I think it's really interesting. We've got Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson here today. And I'm going to throw the mic over to uh, Jeffrey first. And then Brian, I want you guys to encapsulate who you are, because you guys embody, for me, the seconds, like second careers, second families, second things. You know, we're not just one thing. And, you know, when I grew up, I wanted to be a helicopter pilot. That didn't work out. So I went to business school instead. And I've had all these adventures along the way. And I think it's okay now for us not to be just a fireman, just a nurse. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we can be many things. And that's what you guys embody today. And that's what I like about you guys, because you're interesting. You've got a lot going on. So let's go ahead. Jeffrey Wilson, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. So, so good to see you again. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. The, the, the day when you graduate from high school or college and you start that job and you plug away for 45 years until you can retire is definitely not the model anymore. And thank goodness it's not. It, I have so much respect for people that can do that, but I just have never had that attention span, I suppose. So my mom says I can't keep a job. But um, yeah, I've done so many different things. I started out as a, as a fireman. You mentioned that. I was a firefighter paramedic for a while. And um, then I went to school, uh, went to College of William and Mary and majored in biology and decided maybe I would do medicine since I'd been a paramedic, but then I got sidetracked and became a pilot and I flew as a pilot for a while. Then I worked for the federal government for a while. Then I went to medical school. Then, uh, after my vascular surgery fellowship, I went back into the Navy having served once before, of course. And then, um, from there I wound up in special warfare um, the writing thing for both Brian and I, I think, um, has always been a, a passion, but for me, it's actually something I've always done. So I've been writing as the constant thread through all of that. But I think that, you know, the best advice my dad ever gave me in my life, he did one thing for his whole life. He's a pilot. He was one of the youngest pilots ever. He, uh, was 19 when he went to pilot training with the United States Air Force. And he said, look, son, Find something where you would pay to do it and let them pay you to do it and your life will always be happy. Um, and so that's what I've tried to do. If you're interested in something, you should try it and see if it's right for you if you feel that, that calling. So um, that's sort of how I've lived my life, um, which is a little schizophrenic, I guess, but it certainly gives you a lot of adventures, like you said. Well, I think it's great. You know, and it's like my dad, when he, I have a big family and a bunch of sisters and he's like, thank God, one of my daughters gets paid to talk. (laughs) 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 Because, you know, you don't know where life is going to bring you. And if you kind of, you just keep looking for the next adventure, it's really fun. Um, Brian, tell me. It builds on itself too, just real quickly. I think that, you know, it's not like you just have to go from these radically different things, you know, as writers now, Brian and I are able to take this wealth of experience both of us have, because he'll tell you in a minute, his, his story is very interesting as well. And all of it applies. Everything I've ever done builds on the other things I've done. And I'm better at each thing because of that. Um, so yeah, and Brian, you, you've got a much more interesting story. I should stop talking. <laughs> I don't know if it's more interesting, but I think it follows sort of the same general um, path as yours in that, you know, I think really from as long as I had a innate curiosity. And I sort of, I thank God every day that I was born with that uh, curiosity because it's just driven me to be interested in learning about different stuff. And um, so, you know, I wanted to break, I wanted to go get away from home. So I left and moved to a different city for college, went to college at uh, Vanderbilt and I studied psychology because I just started getting really interested in um you know, how, how is it that we think, you know, how do we learn? How do we make sense of the world? And it seemed to me at the time, at least that, you know, one of the most fascinating things uh, in our existence is just the, the, the way that we're able to philosophize and think. So I got very, very interested in the mechanics of the human mind and thinking and studied psychology and 
Um, thankfully, I was uh, on a ROTC scholarship at Vanderbilt, and uh, the Navy was very supportive of me learning these things, but then came time to go serve, and I actually had to do something. Couldn't just sit around and philosophize for the U.S. Navy. <laughs> so I had to actually go do something. So I uh, sort of did a big pivot, and I went into the submarine community, which is you know, sort of going from one complex thing, how the human mind works, to something else very complex, which is nuclear engineering and how we split atoms to make power and we can take all these very complicated systems that are basically just trying to generate energy to drive a submarine around. So I, I did that for uh, a tour, drove submarine around, and again, that natural curiosity just kept, kept hitting and uh, thought, you know, after, after my tour... Uh, got very interested in sort of the the bigger picture, you know, economics and systems and business and, and got really fired up to do something entrepreneurial. So I went to business school at Cornell and, and went through a great program there called the Park Leadership Fellow, which was really about, you know, how do you become a leader of organizations? How do you make an impact? How do you use your principles to, you know, not just set an example, but also, you know, drive organizations forward. And um, from that, I started a business and, and, and did the entrepreneurial thing for, I think, about eight years and was successful there. And, uh, but always in the back of my mind, still had this, this curiosity and wanted to explore it in, in different ways. And uh, storytelling was one of those ways. So um, got into writing and, and met Jeff at a writer's conference, and we became fast friends. And and uh, again, just curiosity about, you know, how can we take this writing thing to the next level? You know, I can only go so far by myself and re realize very quickly working with Jeff that, you know, this whole idea of collaboration, which I think is one of the things we want to talk about today, uh, collaboration is a very, very important part of, of my success in everything that I've done, and especially, especially in this writing career. Well, and I think, you know, you talk about collaboration and I think there's an art to collaborating. I think some people are better at collaborating than others. You know, I look at my, you know, 25 year career doing what I'm doing. You know, I can't, I can't do what I can do without the help of so many other people. You know, there's just for our show today, there's probably 25 people that come together at different, you know, levels, whether it's sound engineers, whether it's researchers, whether it's, you know, you guys, the talent, all these different components have to come together just to put this, you know, little show on the air. And if we don't, get along, if we can't collaborate, if we can't bend and flex and grow, I think it's really difficult to collaborate. Well, I think that's right. I, but I think that's, I think that doesn't overstate it either. I mean, like when we talk about collaboration as co-authors, that's a whole different situation where two individuals come together to do something creative, but everything in every business I've ever been involved in and every career pursuit I've ever had without teamwork, without collaboration, you can do absolutely nothing. And I think that I agree it's an art. And I do think um, that it's something that people have a gift for or don't have a gift for. But there's certainly a lot of things that can be learned about it. Just like leadership, good leadership principles. There are people that are born leaders. And there are people that are good leaders who can become better with education. And I think collaboration is like that too. Teamwork for us is very natural because we come from a military background. So you know, working in the military, especially in submarines, or in my case, in the special warfare community, teamwork is everything. It's all about the guy next to you. It's all about working as a single unit, each part, you know, you're a cog in a machine. And so coming to collaboration with creative writing for Brian and I was very easy because of that military background. But I really strongly believe that in any business pursuit, in any profession, whether it's in an being in an operating room as a surgeon, cockpit resource management as a pilot, whatever it is, you can learn to better collaborate as a team and whatever your business is, whether it's writing novels or driving an airplane or a submarine or running a business, you will be better at it if you can, if you can learn how to be a team. Well, and you guys, now is a really great time to thank our sponsor today. You know, talking about collaborative efforts, you know, we wouldn't be on the air today without companies like NetSuite by Oracle, which is our sponsor today. And guys, you guys know as entrepreneurs, as, as successful businessmen, if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. And Brian, I mean, what do you, 
what do you what do you do to get a clear picture of your finances? Do you review them weekly? Do you have them on your phone? Like, how do you make sure that your spending is where it should be? Yeah, I think that business is being transformed by companies like Oracle, who provide um, business owners, small and large, with real-time data. And we have access to real-time data now uh, in our publishing industry where we can see, okay, what are our sales on a daily basis? We get metrics about where in the country we're doing demographic data, where we're doing well, what age groups we're doing well with. And I think one of the things that Jeff and I talk about is, you know, how do you develop a strategy without data analytics? If you don't have an idea where you are, how do you know where you're going to go? Would you agree with that, Jeff? Oh, I agree with that completely. And it's a no, it's a, like you just said, it's a whole new world, right? Like 40 years ago when you didn't have companies like, like NetSuite and other, other companies like this that are in the data, really in data um, analysis and data provision business, how, how you did that with just spreadsheets. Like it's so impressive to me that 40 years ago you could just like have these spreadsheets and you would have, a huge amount of your hours in your business day just gathering the information and now with companies like this it's at your fingertips in a moment or Brian had said like in in our business I can go on my phone app and tell you what our sales numbers are for the di different books for this hour in the country and where it is and where in the world um, so without information you can do nothing you're just guessing right and you're hoping for the best and maybe you get lucky and maybe you don't but there's no such thing as too much information. And these kinds of companies, they make it so easy. They make it so easy. Right. And there's a reason that NetSuite by Oracle is the world's number one cloud business system. And, you know, like the guys were talking about, it offers a full picture of all your finances, like real time, right from your phone or right from your desktop. And you don't have to guess. You don't have to worry. And that's why NetSuite customers grow three times faster than the S&P 500. And you can too. And guys, I have a snapshot on my phone all the time because there are times I have to do things on the fly. I have to buy advertising. I I have to buy product. I have to do things for my business and I don't want to fly blind. So if you guys want to schedule your free demo right now and receive your free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com slash coach. That's your free demo and get your free guide today at netsuite.com slash coach. That's netsuite.com slash coach. And it's a great little guide. I mean, you're going to want to look at it because these guys are in the business of growing your business and it's, free, sign up, get a copy of it. And really the analytics on your business help you grow. Now, one of the things that I think is really cool guys, and you know, I want to segue a little bit back to your, your writing is the analytics that are on some of these writing software programs. You know, it's pretty darn cool how you can analyze literature from a data pack button up on your menu bar. Oh, yeah. You're talking about like the actual physical writing now, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. I tell you, it, it takes some getting used to. Um, the creative part of your brain just really gets bogged down by too much information. You know, we, we joke a lot about we, we tend to be in our rough draft a little long-winded. Um, and so for most writers, this is true. You wind up with this big bloated package and then, you know, <laughs> writing is really about editing. And so we edit it down to something that's streamlined and, you know, the tier one series uh, has done well because it's quick and action packed and fast moving, but the rough draft isn't like that. Just, you know, going to let you see how the sausage is made here. It doesn't look like that at all. But to me, it's actually a little annoying to see that word count up there because it's almost like, it's almost like my conscience saying, look at you, look at all the words you put in there. But, but it is cool that it, you have all of that data available to you, even just on your writing software. Now, you know, how many words you have, how many paragraphs, how many pages, um, oh, the readability statistics. I mean, which oh, I sure, sure. Yeah. Some of the new programs are even better. I will be honest, Brian is trying to drag me kicking and screaming into the 19th century with the writing, <laughs> with some of these software things. And for me, it's just a, it's a comfort level of not having that information up there. Like it's just too much information for me, but I do like to have it when I go back. I like to have it when I edit and review. Um, but yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? How much information is available. Yeah. So, so Brian, let's talk about, you know, are you guys both bloviators? Like, are you guys both big, like, you know, it's mostly Brian, mostly Brian. <laughs> and then who, who's the chop shop guy? Like, you know, I know you're the surgeon um, over there, Jeff, but you know, 
is there a rhythm to your madness? Like, you know, how, how does that flow go? You know, you, you both collaborate, you're, you're writing, are you writing in tandem where you write one scene, he writes the next? Like, how does that, how does that, how do you execute that? Yeah, we're, we're both writing. And so that's an important point to bring up is that um, the ball, to use a sports metaphor, the ball is always moving down the field. So, you know, every day Jeff and I try to write. And if, and if life gets in the way and one of us can't write that day, at least you have um, the comfort of knowing that the project is still moving forward. So that's another sort of great just sort of side comment about co-authoring that's pretty nice is that you always feel like the project has momentum. When you're writing by yourself, if you take a day off, there's a little bit of guilt or you have something going on that prevents you from writing, you, you start to feel that stall. So I think um, at least emotionally, that's one nice thing about our system is that we don't experience that. Yeah, yeah you have built-in accountability. Well, yeah. it's not just accountability, but also like literally something is getting done, right? Yeah. Like if I'm, if I'm not writing, Brian is. And, and if, when he's not writing, I, there's never a day when no one's writing. Someone's yeah. always, always doing something. Someone's always writing. And, and we talk uh, almost, I mean, I would say pretty much every day. Um, sometimes we might go through the weekend and just trade a couple text messages. But I mean, for us, that's part of this collaboration too, is that this regular communication. And um, that's not only is that the sort of the fun part, I mean, we get to joke around and stuff, um, but those dial that dialogue really generates a lot of this momentum and, and it helps us work through the problems of plotting and character and sort of stay on task. So what we do is we divide up the chapters based on um, point of view and we're not, Define, I mean, we're not stuck with one particular character. We do trade the characters back and forth, but we'll put together sort of some a, a basic outline of what we want to happen in, in the various chapters, and we divide them up, and then we each go off and work on those chapters. But it's not like we go off and work for three months in isolation and then say, you know, reconnect a quarter mm -hmm. later and be like, here's what I did. <laughs> no, we're trading back and forth every day. So do you write, like, do you write on the same document? Like, you know, are you using Google Docs? Are you using, you know, uh, a cloud word, you know, document? Are you each separately and then trading, swapping parts? We, we swap around. It's, it's, I, we know some other co-authors who do that, who do a, a document like that where they can go in. Um, we don't do it. I don't know if that would work for us because we fully write a chapter perhaps and then I send it to Brian and he does his edits. So he'll rewrite that chapter. And then it goes into a master file that we both have that's slowly building its way up to a finished product. So, you know, we're, we're sending back and forth a chapter, maybe two or three chapters at a time. He'll look at mine. I'll look at his. We'll rewrite them. Maybe it gives you an idea for what you need to write next. But we don't do that shared file thing. Um, or at least not yet. We haven't, we haven't tried that yet. And our system seems to work for us, but communication, I agree is the key. It's like any business, right? I mean, if you don't know what the other teammates are doing, how on earth can you know what you're supposed to be doing? And so, you know, we do talk every day. And in fact, when we're like right now, we're finishing um, book six in the tier one series collateral, which comes out in September. So we're in that final push, you know, those last few weeks where we're building the climax and we're really putting the final touches on it. And it's not unusual for us in this phase of the project to talk three, four, five times a day. Um, you'll just get a random call. Hey, you know, this one part I'm struggling with this or, hey, I just had this great idea. That's what Brian does to me all the time. <laughs> just as I'm finishing his last great idea, he has another great <laughs> idea that, that now changes the first great idea. I'm, I'm joking a little bit. We both do that to each other. But that's why the product is so fast and so clean by the time we get it done, because we talk constantly so it's we joke about how we feel like sometimes we have one brain because yeah. after having done this for a few years now he'll call and he'll say hey I had this idea and I'm like I was just gonna call you I had that exact same idea but that only comes about with practiced regular mm -hmm. communication that kind of collaboration where you really are working as a team you're putting the project before yourself there's no ego involved mm -hmm. if you can achieve that whether you're writing or whatever your business is you can be so much more efficient and so much more effective when it's just about the team as an organism rather than you as an individual. And that's what I think we've achieved. Well, that's and what I, I think you know, that, um, 
Oh, go ahead. I just wanted to say that's why I have you guys on the show today because, you know, I've interviewed for 15 years, you know, hundreds and hundreds of authors. And to find a partnership that is not only precision collaboration, which I see with you guys, but also like a machine, like you guys have it dialed in, you've got it, you've consistently produced, you know, how many best-selling books? Yeah, we've got a dozen or so now. So um, you get, and we're better now than we were. Like, it's not like we walked into it and we had the system. Uh, we weren't a machine at first. I mean, we're, we are a natural fit. Our strengths and our weaknesses balance each other, but we also have a shared vision, which is very important in any business, right? So we know what we want. We know what, you know, we want to make the best story that we possibly can. That's the most important thing to us. Um, and so there's not any ego. Um, but yeah, so we are a machine and it was a natural fit, but it took time. You have to work at it. You've got to get there. It didn't feel like work because we're such good friends and what we do is fun. It's not like we're, um, working that hard, but it is a, a good time. But without the communication, you got nothing. But in Brian, you know, some of these success secrets, you know, like this is like a good marriage, you know, a good, you know, your, your writing partnership has lasted longer than, than a lot of marriages in this country. I mean, what are some of your success secrets on your end? What do you think makes you guys unique in, cause I always believe success leaves clues and you guys are leaving a trail for me to follow yeah. to deconstruct. Well, I like the marriage analogy, and that's actually one that Jeff and I have used before, is, is that when we approach each new book, you could say, is like a baby. You know, it starts off, it's crying, it's screaming, it's kicking, it doesn't have a lot of personality, it's very unruly, right? And we have to sort of wrangle this thing and teach it and, and develop it and grow it into this really compelling, interesting human being. And so... If you take that analogy for, for writing, you say, okay, it's like a marriage. Um, you know, Jeff and I both are married and we have wonderful wives and we have multiple kids and, and we would never, neither one of us would never dare say, oh, well, you know, so-and-so is my kid and this other kid, Janie, is your kid and Billy is my kid. You know, you, as a parent and a, a, a spouse, you don't take credit individually right. for your kids or their individual successes. And I think we've brought that mentality to the writing partnership. When the book is finished, it's our book. And we both have provided input. And we don't keep a tally sheet along the way of saying, well, you know, you did this and I did this. And that's not how it works. We're just excited and proud of the thing at the end. You know, that, that is the goal, that we wrote the best damn book that we could write. And we did it together and we're going to show it to the world together and be proud of it together. That's how we approach it. It sounds like a lie, but we get to the end and even Wendy will read a particular chapter and she'll go, Oh, you know, that sort of sounds a little bit like, did you write that chapter? I think you wrote that chapter and I'll tell her, I don't know. And she thinks I'm lying, but I really don't know. Like both of us have written everything because we pass them back and forth, but it has gotten to the point now where with rare exceptions, I really don't remember whether I wrote that first or Brian wrote that first because it's a, that collaborative team kind of approach from the beginning all the way to the end. You never think about ownership. It's like, oh, look at that dialogue. That was me. That was brilliant. <laughs> if it was brilliant, it probably was me. But but so that's a bad thing. But uh, but you know what I'm saying? Like you, we just don't think that way. You just think as a team. And again, that's that military mindset of. You have a mission. You have to accomplish the mission. With my last ounce of strength, I will lead, protect my teammates, and complete the mission. That mindset can be applied to anything, including creative processes like writing. And that, I think, is what we've done. And I think that there's this um, mistaken belief that you know creativity is something that just happens inside um, your mind. You know that it's just something. It's a solitary event. Creativity. And um, I think that it doesn't happen in a vacuum. I think that's a, a myth. Um, and to, to use a military term, I think you could say collaboration is a force multiplier for creativity, right? So, you know, for example, um, you know, we cross-pollinate a lot of each other's ideas. You come up with something and you're like, okay, I have this idea. It's a germ of idea. I haven't fleshed it out. I pick up the phone. I call Jeff. What do you think about this idea? And he's like, oh, okay, 
that's a good idea. Have you thought about this? You know, and, and he adds a little twist. Mm -hmm. Or, okay, that idea could lead to this. What if we did this next? And so you get this sort of, your idea that you presented was a pretty decent idea, but now that it got input from the other person, it's a more complete idea. Um, you know, on the other side, you could say it's like creative abrasion, right? You throw that idea out there, it sounded really good in your head, then you, then you verbalize it and suddenly, you know, it has to stand on its own two feet, it's open to critique, and now, you know, the other person, instead of adding to it, can maybe point out the flaws, tear it down a little bit, and then together, we end up coming up with a much better idea or solution than we would have if we had done it individually. Well, it's like I grew up in corn country and, you know, I used to use this analogy when I worked at Disney and CVS and some other places and there are corn growers and corn killers and the corn killers are like my brothers that used to stomp on a little corn plant like before it even had a chance to grow. I don't know why boys do that. They all do it at some point. It's coming up and they just stomp on it with their boot. I don't see any of my sisters doing that, but, but you got corn killers and corn growers. Then you have the ones that'll water it. That'll maybe trim the dead leaves off, you know, really what you're talking about. And I think you've got to be with someone who's a corn grower rather than a corn killer, because don't you think ego kills a lot of great ideas before they've had a chance to really come to fruition? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why we talk so much in, in all of the interviews we do about how, important it is to remove ego from the team process and you know to to follow up on brian's example um and and put ego in there if brian comes to me or i come to brian and i have this great idea and he tears it down and i take that personally then we're just left with an idea that goes nowhere but if he says yeah no i don't like that idea and here's why and instead of being offended by that i go yeah i sort of agree with that what we wind up doing is these ideas always lead to something better. So no idea is ever killed. It's just altered and goes into something new um, when ego is removed. But if there's a lot of ego and, you know, personal ownership of these things, then you completely, then that's the corn killer. You completely yep. inhibit the process. And so you have to say, here's an idea and be completely open to it being rejected as well as being accepted. And from that, you can go to something even better. And that well, probably said, happens a third of the time. You know, I listen to languaging, you know, for a living. And you said something really important. You said the idea is rejected, not you. Right. Like, that's it. It's an idea. Thoughts. We have 10,000 of them a day, you know, or 100,000, whatever, whatever you're reading. But you weren't rejected. The idea was rejected. And let's talk a little bit about rejection because I'm sure you guys have had some rejection in your lifetime, in your writing career. I mean, nobody just walks onto the publishing arena with a bestseller. Um, I'm going to go to Brian first. Ways to deal with rejection because we deal with rejection in our personal lives, in our professional lives. But I always took it as, well, you're rejecting my work, not me personally. You're rejecting my idea. You're rejecting my show. You know, you're not reject. You don't even know me enough to reject me, but I want to know. Um, I want to know what you guys do. What are your keys to handling rejection so that you can continue to be successful? No, I think that's a great question. And um, you know, my dad used to say this silly little saying, he said, you can please some of the people all the time, all the people, some of the time, but you can't please all the people all the time. And so in our line of work, I think that is sort of paradigmatic because you have to approach this as if I'm going to like, we made a joke before this show about the wilting flower. You know, if you're a wilting flower, this is not the business for you because there are going to be people who, who are even fans of your series. Maybe they like your first book and then suddenly you get a review. They hate your second book, you know, um, you're never going to please everybody. And so what you do is you have to say, okay, I'm going to focus on writing the best book that I can. Um, the criticism, the rejections that I receive, those are not reflective of, um, of my worth. They're not reflective of me as a storyteller. Uh, you know, I think that you, you have to look at, you, you, you don't want to be so vain though that you say, 
um, you know, you take all rejection and, and, and discount it. You know, I'm not saying that because we all can be better writers. We can be better storytellers. There are things to learn from critique and criticism, but it doesn't mean uh, that you stop doing what you're doing. You look at it as this is uh, an impetus for me to do what I love to do better. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Because when I started in radio, one of my first radio shows was with Dodia, you know, the Department of Defense Education. And the show was really terrible because all she said was, yes, no, I'll look into that. You know, it was tough, tough, tough. And the promotion they put out on the radio and was, she's one of the most powerful voices in women's issues today. Well, clearly was not. And, you know, there were reviews all over going, she's not powerful and she needs to cut her hair. Like, you know, just silly things like that. But you know, the fact was, I wasn't the most powerful. You know, it wasn't a good show. Not everything we do is going to be wonderful. Right. And I think it's part of growing up and realizing not every not every time you swing the bat, you're going to hit a home run. In right. fact, you're probably going to whiff more than you hit a home run. And, you know, if you can bunt and make it to first base, great. Because a lot of people won't even go up to bat. And um, I think that's something that all three of us can say because we've had various educations. We've had various careers. You know, we've, we've been doing, you know, careerlets, you know, do one career at one time and pop over to the other and pop back and forth. I mean, that requires a pretty thick skin of going when you don't fit in a box. I don't think you guys fit in a box. <laughs> I know I don't fit in a box. You know, when my dad talks about my whole family, he's like, well, my sister's a nurse, Jen's a nurse, Steven's an engineer, Douglas is a rocket scientist and Sandra. Well, yeah, <laughs> she's yeah. <laughs> and in order to be a, yeah, cause you guys are a, yeah. You're not a surgeon, you're not a pilot, you're not a submarine driver or all these things. You are all those things, but much more. You don't fit in that nice little teeny package. That makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Who wants to take that one? Um, I, I think that's true. I think, I think that you can take um, that conversation and apply it to the last conversation too about rejection, which is it really comes down to being comfortable with yourself. Like you have to make decisions about yourself, whether they're personal decisions, professional decisions, decisions about your faith, whatever it is, you need to say, what's the best thing for me or what's the best thing for my family or the best thing for our writing career. And you need to have the confidence in yourself to push forward with that. So sometimes rejection isn't because many times it's because the product isn't good. And you got to fix it. And we've already talked about that, but oftentimes it's because you're looking at the wrong market or that's not the editor for you, or that's not the agent for you. And, you know, most writers will tell the story about how they had to go to 26 different publishers or 26 different agents. And it was rejected 25 times. And some of them were cruel, like this is garbage. And then one person finally said, Oh, I like it. It's a good fit for me. And now it's a bestseller. So Sometimes you need to be able to look at the rejection and say, yeah, I need to fix what I'm doing. But sometimes you need to have the confidence to say, no, what I'm doing is the right thing. This isn't the right place to do it. Let me continue to look. And so I think that both of those things, whether you're talking about rejection or being comfortable being a little bit different, like the three of us clearly are, um, it requires introspection to say, am I comfortable and confident with what I've done. Am I okay with this decision? Is my family okay with this decision? If the answer is yes, then by and large, I don't really care what anyone else thinks. Uh, now I might be almost sociopathic about that. Um, but, <laughs> but, but I think that that's that level of confidence in, in what you're doing, whether it's your craft of writing or the business that you're trying to launch or uh, the family you're trying to raise or whatever it is, you have to be introspective enough to change course, but you also have to be confident enough to know when to continue the course uh, and say, no, this is a good, this is a good project. This is a good business idea and I'm going to make it work. And all the rejection isn't going to slow me down. Finding the balance between those two, that's the art part, right? You know, have you guys ever played that there's this marble maze game? It's, you have this little wooden thing. It's, you got to get your marble, your steel marble through this maze. And there's all these little holes along the way that the marble can fall through and then the game's over. You have to start over again. And, you know, life is sort of like that. You're playing this game and, you know, in the beginning you fall in the first hole and you're like, oh, okay, 
I'm not going to fall on that, that one again. But each time to pass these obstacles, you have to, you have to practice to figure out how to get around this one. And, and the designers of that game make the holes. They're in worse, worse spots. Like the, the, the further you get to the victory at the end, the holes are placed in the most evil conniving spots. And I think like that's what it's like in, you know, your professional career. As you try to, in publishing, I see this. It's like as you try to get to the top, you know, it's harder to avoid these holes. And when you fall in one, you feel like you have to start over again. You know, the question is, do you have that willpower to say, all right, I'm going to, it takes forever, but I'm going to do it again. I'm going to try the maze again. And I have to go through all these obstacles that I already went through, but I'm going to go through them all over again, because this time I think I can get to the finish line. And, um, you know, how long do you want to play that game? And if you believe you can get to the end and you're making progress, you're not falling in the same hole every single time, then uh, I think you have a shot. And as long as you don't, it's, it's the people that fall in the first hole over and over and over again, they're deluding themselves. But if you're making progress <laughs> and you're figuring out a way to the end, then just keep playing. Well, yeah, I love that. That's, I think, the labyrinth game. I got that for my kids for Christmas one year. And it is, you know, you fall in those holes. And, you know, I'm so glad that you brought this up because let's talk about falling into holes. Like everybody has fallen into a hole, you know, and when you make a mistake, when you, and it's a big one. Like one of the things I love about myself is that I don't make little mistakes. If I'm going to make one, man, it's going to be a big one. Like, you know, it's going to be one everybody's going to notice. I can't hide it, you know. Um, but one of the things that I learned was that, oh, well, like, really? Oh, well, you know, and that's the when, when people say like, Stan, you did this on the air, or you said this, or you did this, you made a mistake. I'm like, okay. Yeah. I mean, when did mistakes become catastrophic and you know we're not talking about somebody bleeding out on a table because you know we chop something off we shouldn't have you know most of the stuff <laughs> we do in our lives are not life or death but I think people take them so seriously they take themselves so seriously and in an era of social media where we're presenting only the best of ourselves that we don't recognize our humanity and that oh well we made a mistake. Okay, move on. Yeah, and I, and they, that relates to confidence as well, right? Like you have to have a you have to have a lot of confidence in yourself and what your mission is and what your abilities are to forge forward, knowing that there could be mistakes and that you'll just simply overcome those mistakes as well. Um, you know, we talk about being you know sometimes mistaken but never in doubt. My dad says that about me, and I think he's trying to insult me, but I actually think it's a <laughs> I actually think that's a good thing right? It is better to make a bad decision and then deal with those consequences and move to the next step than it is to just stand there, deer in the headlights, paralyzed with fear that you might make a mistake. You would use the example of, you know, someone bleeding on the table. I'll be honest with you, I've, having been a vascular surgeon and a trauma surgeon, a combat surgeon in the Navy, I will take the surgeon that forges ahead and maybe makes a couple mistakes over the guy that stands there and wrings his hand trying to decide what to do any day. Um, I was a pretty fast surgeon, and the reason was because I made a decision and I moved forward. If it went took me the wrong way, I changed course <clears throat> and did something different. And I do that in everything in my life, whether it's in surgery or now in our writing, uh, in business opportunities, uh, as a pilot when I used to be a flyer. I think that that's a personality trait that lends itself to success, not being paralyzed by a fear of failure. Failure is just the next step towards success. Now you've eliminated one of the nine paths, right? It's like, okay, I have nine choices. Let me try this one. Oh, that didn't work. Hey, great. Guess what? Next time I only have to choose from eight. So that's awesome. It's just a mindset difference. And it does set apart the people that are going to be highly successful from those that can't be simply because they're paralyzed by fear of failure. Well, and it's training. I can tell you, because when I got divorced, I had, you know, a, a, a three-month-old and a three-year-old. I lost my company in the divorce. I had to somehow figure out something. I'm soul-supporting. My mom's dying. I mean, it's literally like a lifetime movie. My two dogs had passed away the month before after 16 years. And First Sergeant Hoffman came over, my longtime friend, and I was whining. I was standing there in the kitchen going, I don't know what to do. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What do, I, do I do? I do I do? I do I? You know, really just a total train wreck. And he looked at me and he goes, Beck, do something. 
He goes, I don't care what it is, pull the trigger, do something, and then figure it out. He said, if you made the wrong decision, you have more time to correct it. And I will never forget that. He's like, the more you wait, the more time you're burning daylight. Get to the get to the decision. If it's the wrong decision, you have time to course correct. And there's an example. And of course I did. I got a lawyer. I pulled the trigger, you know, moved everything around and it was fine. You know, did I make mistakes along the way? Absolutely. Do I wish I had done things differently in hindsight? Of course. But I don't spend a lot of time time traveling. I don't look back very much unless I need to. And let's talk a little bit. I want to talk to Brian about this one, about this concept of time traveling. You know, you guys time travel in your books for a living. You have to go back in time. You have to go forward in time. But in our personal lives, in our business lives, time traveling not so great because you can't fix the future and you can't change the past. I want to hear what you have to say, Brian, about time travel. Well, I think it's an interesting question. Um, you know, when you were telling your story, I was thinking about how, you know, it seems like bad things, you know, happen in packs. It's almost like, you know, the wolves come as a group, you know? So when, when we, when, when it's almost like when faith sense senses weakness, then it piles everything on you. And you kind of have a choice to make, like either you sort of fight them all off one at a time, the bad things, or you run for your life. And that's that fight or flight. And, you know, and, and fighting them all off might not be the right choice. Uh, maybe, maybe this time, like you said, you just have to make that leap, you know, get away from them, start over. So maybe, maybe flight is the best choice. Or maybe, you know, you can systematically fight off those bad things, um, one at a time and, and come out victorious. But I think that the, the, the tendency that we make, we're especially people that are type A or high achievers, we tend to be very hard on ourselves. So we look back in time. So to sort of get back to your time travel question, I think about this for myself, you know, I can be my own harshest critic and, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I always have to remind myself of that, you know, say, ah, oh, I made... I shouldn't have done that. I should have known better. You know, like I made that mistake and, and uh, you know, my wife will always say, no, you made the best decision you could at the time with the information that you had. Okay. And if you went back in time and you were to face with those same circumstances again, excluding the knowledge, you know, now that how it turned out, you know, just be honest with yourself. Would you make the same decision again? And I, 90% of the time I say, yeah, I would have made that same decision again. And when I do that for myself, that like, then I'm cutting that anchor chain of the past. And I can say, okay, now I can finally move on, stop beating myself up about that bad decision. I, I chose to fight, I chose to run, whatever it is I chose to do in that situation, I did the best I could. And now I move on to fight the next battle, whatever that's going to be. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Jeffrey, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And, you know, in, in writing, time travel is a different thing and um, because you've got editing, right? We don't get, we don't get to edit in real life. Um, in fact, it, we, it's kind of a funny story. Brian and I, even in writing, sometimes can get trapped in a paradigm of our, of our past. You know, we had this one book where, uh, in the Tier 1 series where we had written this thing and this one character actually was in the Sons of War, our new series with Blackstone. We had written this character that was going to do a certain thing. And then we kept struggling with how we were going to resolve the fact that he needed to have done this thing. Yeah. And we did this literally for weeks. We're struggling with this. And one of us, I can't even remember which one of us, suddenly said, well, couldn't we just go back and make him not have done that? It's like, <laughs> like we made that up, right? It's like, yes, we can. Oh, my gosh. And so we went back. We made like two sentences of change in the manuscript. And everything was resolved. Wouldn't it be neat if we could do that in real life, right? But I think that um, in real life, we can't do that. But what we can do is be aware of our past, not be absent of it, not fail to learn from it. But I think, Brian, what he said was perfect. You know, you want to be an analyst of your past. You don't want to be oppressed by it. You don't want to be punished by it. You want to analyze it, see what you can learn from it, and then put it in a box and put it on the shelf and move on unless you need to check in with it again. Uh, learn the lesson and then stop beating yourself up. So if we could do that, that type of time travel where, where we can look back with an analytical mind as we progress forward, I think we'd all be healthier. Certainly in business, it would be healthy. And in our creative work, it's definitely easier. And it's so, sort of funny that we get locked in that same paradigm, even as writers. 
Yeah, I love that. I mean, I just think, you know, life imitates art and art imitates life. I mean, it's a circular thing. And when you guys talk about using your personal experiences, your education, your, your um, credentials, all those things as part of your creative work, you know, you get to create this world for your characters. But one of the things, and I'm going to just leave us with this, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. You get to create your reality in your business. You get to create your reality in your personal life by the choice of your thoughts, your beliefs, examining these things, you know, and I, I found this in the hospital uh, this week, you know, where everybody was so sad and upset, you know, it's a cancer ward, I'm in there too. And I kept looking around and going, well, I could buy into sadness, I could buy into fear, you know, I'm having this discussion with myself literally on the whatever that PET scan table is like, how do I want to think about this? How do I want my experience to be? And you know, it was interesting to me going, I could write this novel of my experience and what I choose to interpret what I see. And it's not that dissimilar to writing a character in a story. And if you write your own story, which is, look, you're going to be successful. This treatment's going to work, all these things. I don't know the outcome, but I'll tell you, I'm a damn better sight off having that outcome in my own personal narrative than I do picking up a drama narrative for my life. And so let's talk about how our thoughts, because you guys are thought leaders, you create thoughts on paper and you bring us along this journey. How does that affect your personal life? The idea that our thoughts create our reality. I mean, I think that's some, I think for me, at least it might be the other way around. I think that, you know, I'm a writer because I have that mindset anyway. Okay. Uh, I don't know if that's true for all writers. I'd love to hear what Brian has to say about that. So I don't think that being a creative writer has changed my ability to write my own story. I think the fact that I've always sort of been a write my own story guy mm -hmm. is why I was drawn towards creative writing perhaps. And, you know, it's funny when I, when I was in medicine, when I was a surgeon, we, I used to have residents and fellows that would work with me. And sometimes you'd get these younger residents or even medical students saying, well, you know, I'm thinking about going into surgery, but you know, the lifestyle is so hard and this and that and the other. And you'd be like, well, who chose, who told you that? Like, right. you don't have to do that. You get to make your own decisions. You can say, well, I'm only going to do these kinds of cases, or I'm only going to work in this kind of place, or I'm going to limit how many patients I see. You don't have to go into someone else's paradigm to be able to experience that part of life. Right, or live somebody write. else's story. Exactly. You write your story the way you want to. Be a, be a physician who doesn't work 100 hours a week just because they do that kind of surgery or whatever. Uh, so that's one example. But I mean, I think writing your own story is the key to happiness in life, whatever you choose to do. Being creative in how you approach life situations and not feeling locked into, this is how it's always been done. So I have to do it that way too. Find me an example of someone who is an enormous success, who is locked into the paradigm of this is how it's done. These highly successful people were risk takers. They tried and failed multiple times before they found the thing that worked. When you look at a Steve Jobs or you look at, you know, all of these amazing leaders in tech and business and creative writing, they're all people that said, I'm going to do it a little different. Mm -hmm. um, and they weren't afraid to write their own story. So I think that for me, it, it came in the other direction. But I'd love to see if that's true for Brian as well. Ne we've never talked about this before. No, I, I like what both of you had to say. And I like um, Sanders' idea of trying to personalize this idea. And I think that, um, you know, find me, like you said, find me a person who hasn't, a successful person who hasn't, hasn't dealt with these things. You know, find me a person too that hasn't uh, read a book or gone to see a movie. Like, why are we, why is part of our human condition uh, storytelling? Right. It's because we need inspiration. We look for heroes. I mean, Jeff and I gravitate to this business because we want to tell the hero's journey. I mean, what is the hero's journey? Like, if you just distill it down to its basic elements, the hero in the beginning of every adventure story is faced with some crises. The crises could be cancer. The crises could be you lost your job. It could be divorce. Whatever it is, you're faced with the crises. Now, the hero has a choice, you know. Are you going to fight the, the crises? Are you going to combat your problem? Or are you going to give up? Now, you know, if the hero just gives up, then you don't have a story. Like, those books <laughs> never sell <laughs> because the story's over. The hero quit. 
right? That's not <laughs> what we want to hear about. We want to know about the people that don't quit, the people that fight that battle. And so every story that Jeff and I write, it's a hero's journey. The hero starts, some crisis happens, and the hero has to rise up. Now, what does the hero have to do? First of all, has to decide to fight. Second of all, they have to figure out, well, what do I need to do to defeat this thing? I've, just, I've decided I want to fight, but I need to gain knowledge. I need to gain skills. I need to gain allies. I have to put together a team of things in myself and people around me because it's hard to win battles by yourself. So, you know, in the case of cancer, you get your doctors on your team. You educate yourself about what the disease is, about the treatment options. You get moral support from your family and from your friends. And that's your putting together your, your war team, you know. And then you go into the climax, which is this final battle. And, you know, if, you put, if you've done your work and you fight hard enough, then you win and you're victorious at the end. So, you know, we write these things in fiction. We put them in movies, but they really personify, like, our daily struggles and that's why I think I got drawn into this because like, it's important for me. I need to be inspired. And if I can write a story that reminds people what inspiration is like, then I'm doing my job. Wow. There's like no better way to end a show. I want to thank Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson. How can people find out more about you guys? Well, we have our website. It's uh, andrews-wilson.com, which has all of our books and the various series uh, listed. The books, um, Red Spectre just came out. Collateral is available for pre-order now. That's available on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Um, but the website's the best place to find us and link to some of the other things that we've got going on. Terrific. You guys, go ahead and check out these books. If you have, have family members who love to read, these are great reads. If you need inspiration, you know, we talk about the hero's journey. Who doesn't need inspiration and a little heroism in our lives? We'll be back again next week. I want to thank Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson and their, their books, which are so fantastic. Go out and grab a copy. You'll be glad you did. We'll be back again next week. On behalf of Sandra Beck, we want you to get out there today to make more money with less time and effort so you can live the life you want. Tune in next week for more tips, tricks, and techniques on Coach.